Dr. Johnson, welcome back to, what are we, episode three of the In This Together docuseries. It's good to see you again. Good to see you, Stephen. I think this is number three. Yeah, I'm I'm losing track a little bit. I think in a good way because I've I've become I feel like I've established relationships with all of you, um, and one episode is kind of blending into the other, and we kind of talk a little bit in between episodes and email back and forth. But yes, confirmed, this is in fact our third conversation together, um, and I want to start with you know I know the last time we spoke things were moving in the right direction on the ground in terms of the virus. Um, but there have been some news coming out. There's some indications that there is, um, you know, a bit of an uptick in cases in the U.S. and Canada and even Europe. So I want to just start, kind of do our due diligence and start by asking you, how are things in Hearn on the ground there? Is it is it is it the same? Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? Are you guys all good there? Well, we're still good, but we're still feeling the same effect that you're talking about that's happening around the country and around the world. Yes, we've had uh, the numbers have stayed low in Robertson County and certainly low in our city for even for being a, a small community and, and small rural county. However, since we've been bringing more staff and students back into school, we have had to deal with the virus more than we were before we were totally virtually. So we're learning how to manage this virus even when you have cases on our campus. So we've had some experience of staff, mostly staff, uh, having uh, been exposed or testing positive and how you respond to that. And I gotta tell you, our, our regional health officials have been just wonderful to work with. They've taken our hand and guided us through the contract tracing processes and put, making sure we're putting proper procedures in place. So it has been a learning experience. And so far we have been able to manage the cases that we've had to deal with. And as we work with our students now, as we start to increase the number of students been on campus, we're actually better prepared for dealing with this virus in cases that we may find ourselves involved with over the next few weeks, because we know we're going to experience more. Yeah, and that's good. I appreciate your honest approach there. Um, and, you know, I think everybody's going to have to deal with what you just mentioned, which is the people being exposed or testing positive. It's just kind of how you're handling it. It's great to hear that you have, um, you know, a nice collaborative relationship with your local um, health officials. That's really important as well. I've heard that quite a bit also. And then, you know, you mentioned you're, you're beginning to bring more students and probably parents into the schools in different, you know, in different capacities. And I, I want to actually talk about that. That's a nice transition into my next question. You know, when we last talked, one of the things that you said you hoped that you would be seeing is having more students coming into the school to our schools to receive service and engage in testing and in some cases do both at the same time and particularly those English learners and special needs students it sounds like that is happening based on what you just said I'd love to hear kind of an update on how that's going um, and what kind of the plan is moving forward particularly given the fact that you have experienced as many have um, people who have been either exposed to the virus or have tested positive yes we're starting to bring more and more students and we're doing it very deliberate we're starting to focus on our younger students first. I think we talked about that last time, our pre-K, kindergarten first, and now I think we're up to bring in second graders. But understand this still is, the option still rests with the parents that are choosing to bring their children for on-campus, her and on-campus experience. And so that number is relatively small, but gradually increasing each week as we move forward. And then for the middle school and the high school, they're on a little bit different pattern because it's a different type of student, different type of coursework they're trying to do. So it is happening all across the district, 
but especially we're monitoring our elementary schools as they bring in more and more students each week and sometimes twice two grades in the same week to increase the number of uh, students that want the parents want them to be in school and we want them all in school eventually but we're just taking a gradual approach now we did make a decision since we talked to you last to ask our teachers to go ahead and return to campus and so that they could start being acclimated back to the new norms that we have on our campus prior to us receiving so many students. And I would say 95% of our teachers have reported to campus and are teaching from their classrooms, still virtually, but, but doing it from the classroom every day. Yeah, that makes sense. And you and I talked about, I talked about this with, I think, I think every member of the, or every um, uh, person who I'm interviewing for the In This Together docuseries at first gave teachers the option to either come into school uh, or teach from home at the beginning. But it certainly makes sense if you're kind of going to make that tr transition to begin transitioning teachers in so that they can be ready, get a feel for the classroom and see um, where it goes from there. I, I want to ask you one follow-up question about your kind of staggered approach to bringing students in, maybe at the elementary levels first, and then at the middle and high school uh, levels later. You know, equity is is a big issue, and that's kind of why we're doing this this docu series. Um, we I, I recently sent a poll out in our ELL community brief, and one of the questions that I asked um, on the poll. And we got about 100 responses so far. So it's a small group. Um, I asked, do you feel that English learners in your district have had equitable access to services and instruction this school year? And 77% of people said no. And I want to tie that into kind of what's happening with you and that staggered approach. I, I get the impression that a lot of these people feel that because English learners are remote and because they have specific challenges that make remote more difficult, they're not. The, the feeling that the teachers have that responded to the survey or the educators have is that they're not receiving equitable access to services. So tying that back into your statement just now, are you seeing at all that the students, and I know it's elementary and high school, so it's different, but are you seeing that those students who are now in school, at least some of the time, that they're maybe able to make more strides than the students who are not? Um, that's one. And two, are you seeing that, that the results of the survey that I just mentioned where you are? Well, I think the answer is yes, but I think you have to quantify, have to quantify that response because you're, you're surveying across the country during a pandemic. Uh, I would imagine if you surveyed, if, you, if there's some surveys out there a year ago before the pandemic, there was probably some serious questions about the equity. I think that's why we're here today. Uh, another reason why we're here today is because of the equity issue. Equity didn't just begin, the equity challenges we're facing didn't begin with the pandemic. They've been going on for years and decades in this country. And we're all soldiers working to improve the equity for all of our children. And in this case, specifically, we're talking about EL students, but you know me well enough, I'm thinking about all of our students mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. So we, we know that there is an equity issue there. It didn't come with the pandemic and it won't leave with the pandemic. So it'd be interesting to see what the difference in that issue is as it is compared to the pandemic, because all of our students are facing equity issues right now because we don't have them in person as much as we would like to. But there's another thing we want to survey our, our staff and our and our parents and our students and all, is safety. You know, we're, we're a predominantly 
black and brown community school system. We're 90 plus percent African-American and Hispanic. We have more of our parents that wanted to have their children taught virtually than they did, than the ones that wanted them to be taught in person. And we can talk a lot about why do you feel the parents feel that way. But as we said before, when you look at some of the reporting of what has been happening nationally and globally, but it's in this country nationally, this is a population that's been impacted the most by this virus. Mm -hmm. And our parents are very educated to that fact. And I think are very concerned to that fact. So no, I am not pleased with the equity issues that we are facing before this pandemic and during this pandemic. But I am pleased that we're doing the best thing to take make sure our children are safe as possible during the pandemic, and then we'll continue to work to try to improve the equity for all of our students, but again, specific for the EL students that we've been talking about the last three weeks or three sessions. Yeah, I really appreciate that answer. I think you you just shined a, a, a nice spotlight on a couple things, and I love it how you mentioned it would be interesting to look at a survey, and I was kind of thinking I didn't want to lose track of our own conversation to multitask too much. But after this conversation, I'm going to look because we had sent out a lot of polls kind of pre-pandemic and we'll see where those numbers are. And I think you're probably right. I think the numbers would be similar. Um, you know, the nice thing here is that as we, we've, you and I have talked about before and I've talked about with a lot of people is that this pandemic is shining a light on those inequities and it is uh, allowing conversations like this to happen, um, you know, at, at, at this level and at much higher and, and lower levels, which is really great. Um, so yeah, thank you. That was a bit of a curveball. I just got those survey results in, but I wanted to really wanted to get your, um, your, your opinion on that. And I'm, I'm glad I asked the question. But, but I, think, I think that survey is important. I think you, it's, it's good to ask that question because it reminds us of why we're here in the first place. I mean, uh, this, the whole issue of having programs, special programs, is designed to help improve the inequities in the system. I, I've talked to you before about my beginning years as educator. I began teaching migrant ESL students, and that wasn't because I was gifted in that area, because it was a need in that area to give students additional training and time because of the situations either they were living in from their language development or they were working in because the families moved across the, the country. We have to do some things to help these students have a fair chance to a quality education. So we're the equity is something we should embrace and not uh, uh, be afraid to talk about and to survey and to look at those results and not take them personally and just strive to get better. You know, as we're working with our teachers right now, it's really challenging for the teachers right now to, to uh, work under this type of situation. But I keep reminding them that it's about students' connections. We're saying, you know, we're going through a grading period right now, and I may be getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. We're, we're, we're talking about grades, but I tr we try to talk more about grace before we talk about grades. And I think I heard some of our other colleagues from around the country use that same phrase, mm -hmm. grace over grades. Because right now what's more important is we're, we're probably not closing the equity gap as fast as we could close it if we had them in person, but we're grateful that we our students are staying safe. And, and keep in mind that the virus we're dealing with is not just to protect the students in school, 
we're having to protect them from infecting parents and grandparents right. in their home. You know, one thing we learned with this, there those cases that we, we dealt with recently is that it can just be in one spot. You can say, oh, it's happened in my elementary school office area, one case. Oh, well, what we do, we, we, let's isolate that individual. Thank God he or she is not extremely sick. They can stay out for 10 to 14 days, test positive and be back. But when you, especially for rural schools, when you get into the issue, well, they were in church Sunday singing in the choir. Their spouse is a coach in the system. Their mother or mother-in-law or father-father-in-law works in maintenance or custodian center. All of a sudden, it's over the whole school. So we're really learning how to manage these cases. And it's bigger than just the well-being or the educational well-being of the students is highly important, but the safety of them and the parents and the staff is more important right now. And that's the way we're approaching this. Yeah. Thanks for putting that in perspective. And, and it actually, it, it, it makes my next question, perhaps um, it, it shines a light on my next question because I, I do want to talk a little bit about not specifically grading, um, but about EL instruction and mm-hmm. about language development. I think everybody I talked with in the last episode had mentioned that they hope to be talking about how we're working with English learners, how we're beginning instruction, how we're differentiating, how we're grouping those students. Um, and now that we are, uh, we're recording this today on October 1st. Uh, so we are in October, we're in, we're in the, you know, the, the kind of flow of the school year here. Um, is it fair, given what you just said, to start talking about Yale instruction and language development? I mean, the relationship building is extremely important. And of course, you can do language development while relationship building. That's something that spirals throughout the course of the year. But what have you seen there? I mean, is that happening? And if so, you know, how is it happening remotely and or um, in person? Yeah, I I believe it's happening. And and I don't want to sound like everything is just perfect. No, we would, if I could design a, a educational climate environment, this is not the way it would be designed that was suitable to help students learn quicker and faster and help EL students get caught up on language skill development. This is not the way I would design it. However, we have to work with it the way that it is. It's ironic, you know, I I spent a little time, you know, reminiscing because of, you know, these conversations of being back to my earlier days as a migrant ESL teacher. And I remember one of the, the, best activities that the student couldn't wait to participate in, I had taken a a big cardboard box, cut a hole in it, and decorated it up, painted it up, and made it look like a TV. And we would get inside of that and practice our language skills, imitating different things on the television, whether it was the sports or the news or their favorite show or cartoon. They couldn't wait to get into that box to talk like they were on TV. Now you can see students actually seeing themselves on the screen. Isn't that amazing how far we've come? So there are some things that are happening. They're definitely at least not just totally preventing language development from happening. There is at least some improvement in our educational systems. So even under these circumstances, our students can still look at devices, have a headset on, visit with their teacher, visit with their students, and get something compared to 
if this was back in the days when I was uh, teaching, there would be nothing. And so we're taking advantage of what we have right now. So yes, the, the, I, I do see us still working at this very diligently. And so the, the emphasis I'm moving with our staff for all of our students, including our EL students, is quality time. You know, we, we have to make this opportunity quality time. And so we've gone through six weeks, we're in our seventh week now, and we're hoping to have all the students that we can possibly want to be back in person within the next two to three weeks okay. that they're back on campus. And so we're still going to be working with parents who are just still concerned about their children being on campus, and they may choose to continue to be online as well. So we're confident that we can keep increasing our number of students and start gaining more traction on the language development and the educational development of all of our children over the next few weeks as we get more and more of them back in person. But again, as I've said before, we will want them to continue to use the technology we've been training them on and teaching them on as we develop in-person instruction. And then hopefully with what we've gained from the experience with virtual instruction, we're gonna be getting time and a half Right. going forward rather than just the school time period. Yeah, it's interesting to hear people say like when we design for in-person instruction, like it's this new thing that nobody's ever done before because <laughs> we're, you know, on the one hand, it makes me happy because it means that to a certain extent, people have become comfortable with remote or hybrid learning or whatever they're doing right now. Comfortable enough at least to think, oh man, what am I going to do when I go back to my regular in-person situation. On the other hand, you know, I'm, I'm obviously well aware of the reality that it's, it's not just going back to teach the way that you taught before. You know, you're going to have to have um, safety measures in place. It's, it's not going to be the same in terms of like using manipulatives and grouping students together. So it is scary, but I do kind of leave that little bit of hope that you know, people are sort of becoming accustomed to using the technology that maybe they weren't used to before. And so that was, that's where that time and a half comes in that you're talking about, that people can continue using that. Um, but I just think I find it really interesting and somewhat ironic that, you know, I talk with people, they'll say, they'll literally say, my greatest concern right now is what's it going to be like when we go back to school? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's, it's just very complicated, obviously, and there's a lot that goes on there. Um, all right, so I want to talk a little bit about um, the events that you've been having, both online and in person. You know, we talked last time about um, about Eagle check-ins, what you're doing in there, and that had allowed your staff at that time to reach over 600 families, which for a district of your size, a small district, was a huge accomplishment, and I'm sure there's been more since then. Um, I'd love it for you to provide an update on those events because people are, are are trying to do those. And now people are trying to say, how can we do some of these in person? You, There were a few that you were doing, I feel like, in person that were socially distanced and that were working the right way. So I'd just love to hear an update on that because I think that that's something that people are thinking a lot about right now. Um, so how will you go about continuing to do those so that you can reach students and their families um, in the most equitable way possible? Yeah, and, and I'm extremely optimistic that through this pandemic and through the situations we've had to develop and the systems we had to put in place to communicate with our students, which gave us, since they're in the home, we're communicating with a lot more parents. Uh, 
and 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 even the teachers are communicating more with the parents because many times, especially with the younger ones, they're right there with them, you know, in the Zoom classroom on the platform while they're going to to school at that time. And so, we're hopeful that that connection and building that relationship with the parents over the first six weeks of the school year. It, we actually know it is stronger than it was the first six weeks of the last school year because of the number of parents we're able to communicate with. Unfortunately, many of our parents may be home because they're not working right now, but at least the advantage is they're getting to be closer to their children while they're going through classes and building a good relationship, a, a better relationship with his teachers uh, on a daily basis. Our check-ins are still going on. We're, we're learning a lot about uh, the viewers of the check-in, the numbers are still growing, even though we have uh, contacted uh, directly over 600 uh, staff, I mean, uh, parents. Our enrollment now is over 730. Great. So that number has actually increased, uh, exceeded what we were planning for at the start of the school year. And I know a lot of schools have been faced with a drop in enrollment. Our enrollment actually has increased over this uh, pandemic, the start of this 2021 school year. So we're noticing the trends now in that I think similar to some conversation you and I have had offline that, you know, people have different viewing and listening opportunities. Yeah. And we're noticing that more and more of our, uh, our parents, we would assume, are viewing later uh, rather than the actual live broadcast that might be happening every Friday at, uh, at 12 o'clock. And we're going to also look at those times to see if it might need to be adjusted. I still like, you know, Sunday afternoons is one of my favorite times to have a call out. We use Blackboard Connect to call out to our parents. And, and that's where we're actually calling out to probably closer to 700 parents. But that's a short, important message about the start of the next school week or what might be changing in the routines the students might be using as far as food service and school and things of that nature. So we're still using both of those platforms. Uh, weekly, and we can plan to continue to do that. As far as the in-person contacts, we're having more of that, but that's being more one-to-one. We're really staying away from any group meetings. You know, the, the one thing we've learned about this experience with this virus is the issue of contract contact tracing. Right which is really important. And I'm sure many of your listeners have dealt with that or if they're going or will deal with that in the school setting. And, and the one thing you wanna do as we're transitioning more and more students on campus and working more with our teachers and eventually with our parents too, is still practice good social distancing. Because when you do need to determine who might need to be quarantined or put in isolation, that contact tracing is vitally important. So when they come to say, well, have you been around the superintendent? No, because he won't let anybody within eight feet of him. Mm -hmm. And so I want to model those kind of measures for everyone. Now, obviously it's different for our teachers and for our students and for some of our other frontline workers, but still try to limit your contact with individuals and make sure you stay within the social distancing guidelines that will help you when you get into the contact tracing. So that's why we've been slower in having group meetings with our parents and larger groups until we're confident that the virus has subsided significantly, that the threat of, of a spread is very, very minimum. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
it's one of those things where I feel like if you start too early and you bring in large groups or even medium-sized groups into the school, there is so much, and I've experienced this myself, you know, with friends and family, there is so much just human nature involved in our day-to-day interactions, this muscle memory that we built to give someone a hug or a high five or, or a pat on the back or whatever the case may be. And I feel like, you know, we hear social distancing all the time. You know, obviously we know what works, but to really like break that muscle memory that we've had for years requires some training for lack of a better term. And I guess if you're training with smaller groups of people, you can kind of build up that um, muscle memory again, for lack of a better term, so that when larger groups are in place, you kind of resist that urge, that just human urge to to to, to be in contact um, with others. Um, no, and maybe, exactly. maybe that maybe that's obvious. I don't know if I'm stating the obvious, but I, that's what I was that's what I was thinking about when you were when you were mentioning that. Well, no, I think this it, it, it may be obvious, but sometimes the 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 most obvious things is in the simplest things are the things we need to practice the most. I know that's what I've been hearing from our teachers and campus administrators that they really value the gradual increase. They feel like they're able to get the teachers on campus first, get them acclimated, get small groups of students on campus, get them acclimated, rather than dealing with a large number to begin with. You know, I told you about us working with the regional health departments in, in, uh, over the past few weeks. And, and keep in mind, obviously this is a national broadcast, so this is it's gonna be different in every area of this country. And I'm not suggesting that the way we're doing is any better or worse than the way anybody else might be reopening their school. But one of the things that she they did tell us is that more of the schools that started in person, over 40% of those campuses have had to shut down mm-hmm. for a few days or a few weeks already this year. And the number is actually getting closer to 50%. So I think that goes back to your point about uh, muscle memory, uh, that when you put large people together, all of a sudden you get comfortable. Today, I went to the grocery store to get something really quick and got to the checkout stand and realized I didn't have my mask on. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. So, again, muscle memory just didn't remind me to put that right. mask on. So you have to go back out. I pulled my shirt over my face and looked like a mugger, and but I, I got out of there. <laughs> With, with paying for what I went to get real quickly. So it can happen to anybody, any of us at any time. And so that's why I think the system we put in place for us is helping us develop new muscle memory, muscle and memory uh, at a time when it's really important not to forget what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and when it's so easy to forget. So. Yes. I'm glad we talked about that. I was I was in the middle of making that statement, and I said, "Am I just is this too obvious for everybody?" But I just feel like it's it's really important, and it seems to be mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be a part of every conversation that that I hear. Social distancing certainly does, but the idea of making sure that you're kind of in a in a group setting like a school, and you're going back to make sure that you're gradually going back, um, I think that's important. <clears throat> well, there's an urgency to get the students back in school because we all know that in-person learning is going to increase their learning. So I, I, I don't fault those for trying to do it quicker than we may be doing it. It's just you have to kind of depend on the community you're working with and the students you're working with and your staff to make the best decision for you 
and your your school district. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, you and I have talked, we've talked quite a bit. I feel like, I feel like one of the sort of overarching themes of all of our conversations has been around what we can learn from this whole experience. Some of the silver lining, some of the things that we, that we don't want to go back to. And in fact, one of the things that, that resonated most, uh, one of the many things that resonated with me that you had said, and one of our conversations was our goal is not to go back to normal. You, you know, and you mentioned earlier the idea of time and a half. You have this technology now. You're going back to school. You'll be able to do uh, to do things even better. Uh, and I think that you've kind of you've you've alluded to this a little bit in our conversation today. But I'd love to hear a little bit more if you've heard, seen sort of any indications, um, maybe with the kids that are that are beginning to go back to school, or maybe even in a remote setting, if you've seen any, seen any indications of what school might look like in a not sort of normal way. And if that makes any sense, like, you know, particularly for ELs and, and, and these vulnerable student populations, um, are you seeing your teachers or your teams do anything that's like, wow, this is now, they're using what they've learned, they're using the skills that they already had, and it's not normal, but it's better. You know, I think there are, are some signs of that. Um, we'll certainly, the more students we bring in, the more chances I get out to see staff and students at, at work, uh, I think it will, the trend will continue. What we're, what I'm seeing uh, is the different ways that students can be learning in the room, in the classroom. And some of that is coming from the systems they've put in place for the students to be learning at home. Uh, I was talking to someone this morning about the different ways that children learn. And they actually said, remember some of the students that were they reminded me some of the students that are struggling with uh, virtual learning were struggling with in-person learning. Mm -hmm. And some of the students who are struggling with in-person learning are doing better with virtual learning because they work better more independently. So I think our, our uh, assessment of how students can find the best learning modality to work in is actually increasing and should help us in the classroom that you'll see a lot of different ways that the teachers can use technology and the different grouping and methods of teaching that they have you know, developed over the years to give the students exactly what they need in a way that they can benefit the best. So hopefully, you know, what I'm seeing early on is the signs of, of different groups of students working on different projects and being very comfortable and maybe less time lost because they've been using this technology and this equipment. And probably more important than the technology is the programs they're using now. Mm -hmm. You know, we have introduced a lot of new programs, different management systems that the students are able to get into much quicker and faster and easier. And, and I think technology is gonna help us create more diverse learning opportunities for our students. Uh, one of the difficult challenges, whether you're uh, 22 kids in the classroom or 11 in the classroom and 11 at home, is getting to the level that that child needs to be successful. Yeah, you know, and it sounds like a lot about what you're talking about now is just getting to know more about how your students learn. Um, and without this sort of forced remote learning experience, we may not have known that, you know, Juan does better in a virtual environment. And, you know, uh, 
uh, Emily, you know, struggles in in the virtual environment and also struggles in the classroom environment and getting to know what is it about that particular student um, that either inhibits or in, in the best case scenario accelerates their learning. Um, and so I'm glad that you're looking into that. And I know it's probably too early now to, to sort of, I just, you know, you said there's some indications, which is kind of all I was looking for. But boy, how much of it is just getting to know, wow, like this is insightful. I mean, I can I can list off just off of my my own children, the four kids that I have, my friends' children. I can list off a bunch of names of kids who are doing really well right now in remote learning. And 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 one in particular that I'm thinking of, my my good friend Sana, I mean, he he doesn't ever want to go back to a school setting, and not because he doesn't like school, but because this just works for him. It works for him. Whereas, you know, I could say one of my kids right now is just, he needs to go back to school. Um, and, and there's certainly a great element there and a, de- and a development, you know, element as well. And I'm not saying that, that school shouldn't be for, you know, that we shouldn't go back to school. But what I am saying, I guess, is that we're just getting to know who these kids are more. We're in, in, in kind of a, you know, not a way that we wanted to or expected, um, but if we can use that to our advantage, we can really tailor the learning program to the students that we're serving. Yeah, we've looked at learning styles for right. students for decades uh, uh, and what style do they learn the best. And, and again, taking a more proactive approach to what we're doing during this time is the approach that I think is best suited from a leadership perspective. What can we learn from the students as we engage them in learning from this different systems that we put in place, which we're calling virtual or synchronous learning. And then how can we use that now when we move to, we're moving more to an asynchronous plan that will help the students use technology and help them also be able to, if they need help in a particular area, this system that we built based off of the virtual learning will be there and at their disposal, hopefully in person or still at home for them to continue to improve on their skills. And so the, the, the one thing I think people overlooked is, and I remember back when I was doing migrant education, we had the ability to track our students from one district to another district in the state and to another district in another state. We had that technology back when I was teaching uh, and, and that gathered a lot of information that the receiving school would need to have to help move quicker, quickly to get that student at the level that he or she needed to be at. So there wasn't a lot of time wasted trying to figure out what's the reading level, what's the language level and where do we need to begin. But now because of, and where we are today, you know, in EL specifically, even with, you know, elevation, we have so much more data at our disposal that these students will walk in and all the work they're doing now remotely can be recorded and used used so that, you know, I was on the forum the other day with a lot of the EL teachers from around the country and one of the more difficult challenges we face is the amount of time we get with students to help them with their language development. I heard a lot of frustration. You probably have seen that in the different uh, forums you shared with me and I'm sure you participate in where one of the biggest frustrations 
is I don't have as much time as I like to have with the students. Yeah, absolutely. And so what I'm trying to get our teachers, I'm, I'm taking back to our teachers, you know, I know time management is important and we're not going to ever, you know, not have good time management, but time well spent is more important. And with the data we're collecting from these systems that we've been building over the last six weeks, it's gonna be so valuable to make that quality time that you have with those students, that 30 minutes or 45 minutes or hour every other day or whatever it might be more uh, important and valuable to the student. So it's the, it'll make that time, time well spent, even though you're fighting you know, uh, a time management problem because you have so many students to see and very little time to see them in. But the more information you have, the more you can move quickly to the areas they need to be working on and keep them moving in the right direction. That's the way I'm looking at where we're, what we're taking away from this experience as we move forward uh, into the future. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the only, the only, I guess, caveat that I would put on that is I think you're right. Like there's, there's, there is going to be a tremendous amount of information and data that we can use to then have conversations with students and increase that quality time. And, and just as importantly, to decrease the amount of time that we spend pouring over data points, but there needs to be or there need to be systems in place so that that data is both accessible and organized in a way that somebody can look at it relatively quickly and understand what it all means. Um, and I don't want to go down that road because that's certainly another podcast or another episode for another time. But I think that you, just the fact that you're saying that and bringing it up shows that you're thinking about it. And as a district leader, thinking about ways of how we can get that data, not only in the hands of our teachers, um, but make it make sense so that they can actually do something with it. And, and, and you know, I'm, I've always been a big proponent of sharing the information with students in one-to-one -one settings or whatever the case may be and saying, hey, here's, here's where you are. Here's where we want to get you. How are we going to go about getting you there, especially with English learners when it comes to, you know, language development? So, yeah, uh, and I just go back and look at the contrast in last spring when this first started, most of us, uh, at least we had to depend a lot on paper packets. Mm -hmm. you know, we put packets together. Manila folders. Uh, putting pencil to paper is not going away. Your ability to use that pencil and on that piece of paper, whether it's math or writing skills or reading skills, is still very, very important and, and will stay there uh, for years to come. Now, now we're we're not sending packets home. We're sending iPads and Chromebooks home. And so by that connection to technology, we're able to gather data that would be very valuable to us to see, you know, everybody's worried about how much the students are losing, or I'm not worried about them. I'm, I know they're getting, they're going to have their challenges to keep up with the pace that it was in person, but also can learn about how they're gaining some ground and where are they gaining ground and what does the data show us that is really happening with them other than it's just predicting, well, they're going to be further behind because they're not here in school. Some students may be further behind. Some students may be catching right. up. Let's just keep an open mind and see where they are. And the more data we can gather in and collect over this period of time, the more valuable it will be for us moving forward into the next six weeks and into the next semester, and most importantly, into the next year. Yeah, that's a great kind of cautionary statement for people who may be listening or watching to, to you know, where we are in 
you know, teachers are stressed out and understandably so. And administrators, I mean, we are dealing with a tremendous amount of stress and pressure to perform and to do right by our students in any way we can. But let's not lose sight of what you're talking about now, which is making sure that we're learning from this and taking a step to reflect um, because we don't want to be sitting here a year from now not remembering or not sort of having the information that we need to really think about um, how can we improve. Right. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned all that. That, that wasn't really a, a, something that I was um, sort of expecting you to, to, to talk about today, but I'm really glad we went down that road because I think it's really important. Okay. Um, so I want to wrap it up with a couple, a couple questions that I've actually, I mean, these are questions that I've asked you before, but I think that they've produced some, I think, really interesting um, responses. And the first one is, um, in the last couple of weeks, since we last talked, mm-hmm. have there been any sort of big surprises that you haven't gotten into yet? What, what's been the biggest sort of surprise as you've gone through the last couple of weeks? Well, I've kind of alluded to one of the surprises is for, for quite some time, probably the first three weeks of this school year, we really, because we had so few students on campus and so few staff on campus, most people are home, we had not had to deal with the virus up front and close. So that's been my, you probably can detect some of that from the, what I've shared with you. Uh, That's been a challenge. uh, And it's something that I would, you know, I'm sure lots of individuals have differing experiences in dealing with the the virus, both personally as well as in the professional setting. But that is something you just need to be very well trained in and skilled in. And we have grown so much in our understanding of this virus by working with some quality individuals that have shown us to lower our fears and look at it realistically. And this is how you do it. And it's so complicated, at least in Texas, it's been kind of complicated, or at least for me, it's been complicated whether you isolate for 10 days or 14 days. And, you know, those things have been difficult, but because we've experienced it recently, now even I feel more confident in giving directives on how we should handle each situation that has come our way. And you're going to have to have some experience with that because more than likely you're going to be dealing with that Mm -hmm. at some point in time. And so even though that's somewhat of a negative, uh, but I think it helped us to, uh, be better prepared for increasing the number of students and staff that we have on campuses. If we'd not have had that experience, I think we'd have been floundering and maybe have made some big mistakes with large number of students and staff on campus that we won't be making those mistakes now that we've had the experience with a small number of staff members earlier on in in the school year. Yeah, and again, I think that's a testament to the way that you roll things out while bringing people back. And I really appreciate your transparency here because I actually haven't spoken with at least anybody in the In This Together docuseries yet that has dealt with this, maybe in our next round of conversations. But, um, you know, I, I know that you're in a smaller district and so that you, pr- you probably have more visibility into what's going on in, you know, in individual schools and in individual places. But um, it's also just kind of surprising to me that I haven't heard uh, anybody really talk about this. And I, I appreciate the lens through which you approach it uh, about learning from it because uh, it probably is going to happen if it hasn't happened already. Um, and I just think it's one of those things where for some it's out of sight, out of mind, you know, we have all these, these plans in place, but until you actually deal with it and see what it really looks like in your particular context, mm-hmm you know, how do you, how do you go about doing it? And if, if you do it in a situation where you have everybody back, that could be certainly a little bit more difficult. Sure. 
Um, so give us a preview of what's coming up for you all in the next few weeks. We'll, we'll chat again in the next couple of weeks, but, um, but what is on your plate right now? What's kind of, uh, you know, your biggest concern moving forward and what do you hope to accomplish? Well, looking forward, we're, we just met with all of our campus leaders this yesterday, as a matter of fact, to hear once again, their transition plan. And we're, we're looking at uh, now activating our busing system. Uh, we have a plan to, again, gradually start bringing students that need transportation uh, to school. We're asking our parents to, as much as possible, to bring their children to school and pick them up. But we know for some of our parents, that's going to be difficult. So we're trying to work out a system to bringing more of our students into the school setting. And so that is starting to increase, as well as the number of students over the next two weeks that will be allowed to, if they choose to, to come on campus. And then we're trying to look at how best to educate children on campus, because you're when you when you switch from virtual to in person, that can put a lot of pressure on teachers when they may have so many students uh, in their presence and then so many students at home virtually. Yeah, and that's so, causing a lot of anxiety among a lot of teachers that I've been speaking with because they feel, how do they do both, you know, and how do they provide an equitable experience to both, to both groups? Sorry to interrupt. I just want to interject. You no, know, and, and, and I'm glad you said that because uh, I'm trying to guard, protect our teachers with that because I, I told them yesterday, or not the teachers, the administrators, that I'm okay with them continuing to use the virtual learning centers in school while we're going through this transition. So more students may be coming to school, but it doesn't mean they necessarily have to be in every individual teacher's classroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For example, our, uh, our athletic department is using the gym as a huge learning center for many of their student and student athletes. So they're coming there, they're all over the bleachers, all over the gymnasium with their devices, still taking the classes that the teachers in the building are teaching. And so I'm suggesting to our administrators to be creative and flexible so the teachers aren't stretched too far, too fast, having to monitor students that are learning virtually at home and monitoring students that are learning virtually necessarily in their classroom. So again, using these larger settings, it's been very effective. As a matter of fact, uh, we finally got to play a football game the other day and we had to go two and a half hours to get to the game. So the team had to leave at one o'clock, which is during the school day. And for the first time in history in Hearn High School, the students didn't check out a class. Yeah. They took their devices, they took their uh, hotspots, they hopped on the bus, and they stay, stay connected for the next two hours till school is out. Mm -hmm. and so we're learning to use the virtual concept even within the building. And then again, we'll take a gradual approach to getting the students back in their traditional classrooms, hopefully at a point where there's very few students out there virtually. And those students can be learning asynchronous. They may be a little delayed learning, but it's not forcing the teachers to watch children in the classroom and children on the screen at the same time. That is very difficult to do. And I can't imagine how some of our teachers are able to do that, but some of them are doing it now, but uh, because they want to, they just wanted the children sure. 
and and I respect that. Yeah, well, I'm sure. I'm sure on behalf of your teachers and and as a as a veteran, longtime high school teacher myself, I mean, I really appreciate that because you you know you have to. This is grace. What you're talking about here now, you know, you have to be able to ease in. And what I really appreciate about all of our conversations, uh, Dr. Johnson, is is your your gradual approach to making this happen and your understanding that we are in a situation that's, that's in many ways, um, the award is overused, but in many ways unprecedented. Um, and it, just making sure that we're taking the right steps at the right time to get to where we want to go, but also learning from it. And I think the theme of this conversation has been taking those gradual steps, um, but also making sure that we're learning along the way um, and figuring out not what the new normal is, but what the better normal is moving forward as we, as we move ahead. Yeah, there's a, there's a there's there's a new normal and there's a new reality that we we're learning to work with. I like that better. I like new reality better than better normal. So we'll we'll coin that one. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on the third episode of In This Together. Really appreciate it. This conversation, I feel like, went in a few different directions. Um, and so I appreciate your ability um, and uh, and not only your ability, but your um, your desire to kind of go in a lot of different directions and talk about many different things. Really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you uh, allowing me to do that. It's, it's almost therapeutic for me to be able to talk about this, and, and I appreciate you bringing that out of me. Uh, it helps me understand more about what we're trying to do and is it working and what we might need to modify and change in the future. So I do appreciate this opportunity and hope it's beneficial to you and others. 